Today is September 12, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Eric Fortune. Hi, Eric. Howdy. He is an associate professor of biology at NJIT, which, for those of you not in the know, um, is the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Everybody knows that. It's silly. Um, his lab has a couple of different strains of neurothology research going on. The one we'll be talking about today is concerned with working out how the rules for social interaction by members of the species are encoded in the brain. So around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hi, Todd. Good afternoon. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hi, Charlie. And we've got me. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. So, um, Eric, in a very cool recent study, you describe evidence that might mean that when we engage in cooperative behavior, our brains are not just encoding a representation of our individual motor behavior, but an even more salient representation of, in some ways of the combined behavior of the pair or maybe even the group. Um, if I understand that right, that's kind of huge. Um, so you studied it at the level of song duetting in Wren pairs, right? Uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But can you say something about scale here? Um, what's the breadth of cooperative undertakings and the timing of cooperative undertakings that we could sort of consider on a neural scale? Like, could a CEO be representing like the entire corporation's like forward movement and you know more saliently than his own? I mean, I don't just let's talk about cooperative behavior. What does it mean? I mean, to start with, at its simplest level, um, is just two organisms working together to do something that neither organism uh, could do together. And one could argue that one of the hallmarks of being human is our ability to scale this cooperation across not only numbers of people, but uh, scales of of time. We can have cooperative performances that go over many, many lifetimes. For instance, like uh, uh, in medieval times, building an enormous church could take lifetimes. And that's a form of cooperative performance that goes well beyond what any single individual uh, uh, could do. Uh, but for our kind of study, uh, we focus in on the very fundamental and most basic uh, problems associated with cooperation, which is that how they go about organizing and achieving that kind of uh, performance, which is really different than the kinds of questions uh, that a lot of people ask, which are more evolutionary or functional, meaning why would an animal choose uh, to cooperate, or when would they uh, choose to cooperate, or from an evolutionary perspective, um, how would cooperation uh, increase my fitness uh, uh, at what cost to me and my and my kin. Uh, so for us, we've, we've chosen animals that have a discrete cooperative performance that we can easily quantify on a moment-to-moment uh, -moment basis. And that we don't need, although we're interested, we don't need to know the why or when of it, just that they, they do it. So is, is it fair to say that one of, uh, one of the differences might be talking about uh, real-time cooperative behavior? Because some of the longer scale cooperative behaviors, you think it's uh, certainly with human stuff, it's kind of mediated by uh, uh, history or written stuff. Or in a lot of other species, it's kind of, you have statistics of, of the kinds of behaviors that our animal has, and then you react to those kinds of things, and you build them up over time. But it's not a back and forth cooperation that you're doing when you're having kind of a real time 
conversation or uh, um, the duetting in the rents? Is that yeah. a, a useful distinction in terms of the brain? Uh, it's absolutely a useful distinction. It's a really um, important one. Um, we are looking at the moment-to-moment -moment control of, and maybe we should use a different word than cooperation, we can say even co-acting, um, that the animals are doing this at the same time and coordinating with each other. And uh, that lends itself to current um, approaches in neuroscience because it occurs over the period of moments, meaning from milliseconds to many seconds to maybe minutes at the, at the most. And you can imagine that doing a neuroscience experiment where you place an electrode in the brain right adjacent to a very uh, a single neuron often, that maintaining a recording from a neuron for days or weeks or these longer scales would not be possible. So rather, we're focusing on the performance that occurs sort of on the same range of time that we can make these kinds of neural um, recordings. And also the sets of, of problems are completely, are completely different when you're starting to talk about uh, uh, longer time intervals like life history and seasonal control and all sorts of phenomenon that may be modulated by things beyond simple changes in firing rate of, of small numbers of, of neurons. So let's talk about the, the, the behavior that you looked at. So can you describe this duetting behavior? Because it's, it's not a duet in the sense of a ballet where two people are sort of interleaved doing it. This is an alternating, a sort of interwoven song that right, can describe it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the example that we like to use as a human correlate of it is, is dancing. You picked dancing was a, a good example where uh, two people have to coordinate their movements on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, and the leader, whoever that happens to be at, at any given time, still has to pay attention to the cues from the other person. Now, dancing is hard, and dancing is difficult for a bunch of reasons. One is that um, it's a complex motor behavior, so just doing the movements even by yourself sometimes can be difficult depending on how many left feet you have. Um, but uh, then you have to be able to read subtle cues from your partner. And those cues can come from multiple sources, from your eyes watching your partner or from touch, the touch that you have between your partner. Now the bird singing the duet, the advantage and the beautiful feature that we take advantage of is that the animals segregate the cues in time. The male sings its part, and then the female sings her part, and then the male sings her part, and they go back and forth very, very quickly, so fast that if you listen to the song, it sounds like a single bird is singing, even though it's two birds uh, alternating their syllables back and forth. So it would be like, um, uh, there's really no good human equivalent, but imagine you're reciting a sentence and two people do alternating words. That would not be an easy task, but for these birds, they are experts um, at that. So I guess you could think of it as, you know, could, so you could think of it as potentially like this pattern generator that goes off and this fixed action pattern goes off as soon as one bird stops singing. And so at the end of the sequence, the other bird starts. And so you, but you kind of found that that's not the case. It's more of like a, a, a dialogue. It's sort of related to, the parts are related to one another and they're responding to one another. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this behavior was first um, discovered by um, a research scientist, Nigel Mann, who was cataloging the diversity of duet singing in a particular group or clade of, of wrens. And 
trying to figure out sort of ecological correlates and evolutionary correlates for how um, uh, the singing has evolved. And I lost track of the question. <laughs> so is it the, the fixed action pattern versus the dialogue? Oh, right. So, uh, so, in, so when Nigel Mann was in the forest, he was very intrigued by the manner by which they were um, duetting but not paying as much attention to how they coordinated their duets. So he knew that they were alternating syllables, but maybe there's many ways you could achieve that. One possibility would be that both of you have a tape recorder, uh, a pre-recorded or uh, a performance that's ready to go, and you get a single cue, and both of you start, and you just happen to be aligned because you've started at the same cue. Another possibility is that one is completely leading, and those sounds cause the other one to sing the companion uh, parts. And then another possibility would be that they are interacting with each other on an ongoing basis, so that if one bird says the, the next one says are, or whatever, that they're really responding in a completely flexible way on a moment-to-moment basis. And so the first thing that we did in our study was try and figure out what are the rules by which they sing. How flexible are they? How, what are the cues they're using uh, to interact with each other? And so what we found was a combination. Each bird can, we discovered, we didn't know beforehand, can sing by themselves, which means that they have a program in their brain that they can produce without the other individual, so they don't have to hear the other individual. Um, but those songs differ uh, from the songs when they sing in, uh, in, as a pair. So the timing changes and some subtle change, there are some subtle changes in the frequencies of the syllables that they, uh, that they produce. And uh, um, so it becomes, it's clear uh, that the birds both have a fixed action pattern, but this fixed action pattern can be modulated by sensory feedback from the other animal. And as it turns out, that is a very common situation uh, that we've discovered in neuroscience. Lots of uh, motor programs have a built-in uh, sequence of motor activities that are then modulated uh, to some degree, more or less, uh, on sensor, using sensory feedback. So at the, at the physiological end of the study, because you actually went in and looked at what HVC neurons are doing in response to song, um, you actually found that it, these neurons in HVC responded more strongly to the full duet than to the so to the individual uh, that bird's particular part of the song. So in some ways, these birds are more tuned to the entire song rather than their own particular part of it that they're actually producing. So could you talk about that? Yeah, it's uh, um, a priori, you'd kind of imagine that the animal has to know something about the combined performance. And imagine this example in people. You could teach a man and a woman their parts in a tango, for instance, or, or a cha-cha, I don't know, it doesn't really matter what dance it is, actually. And if they had never seen two people dance, and then you, you train them up perfectly in their own performance and put them in a room, it seems unlikely or very difficult to imagine how they would figure out to coordinate their two parts together in order to dance the dance. But you show them one playback, one video of someone doing the dance, and they would instantly have a representation of what the combined performance is supposed to be, and they probably could dance immediately. Probably not well. They'd have to figure out how to coordinate it, but they could do it. And so it seems obvious uh, 
from first principles that the birds should have some notion, some representation in the activity of neurons in their brain that represent the combined output of the pair of birds. But based on previous studies that have been done in other birds, in zebra finches in particular, hundreds of other studies, we knew very well that the animals have a representation of their own output. So the most uh, reasonable hypothesis would be that the male bird would have a representation of his own uh, activity, and the female will have a representation of her own part of the song, and then they have some other mechanism for combining uh, the, two, the two performances at the same time. And uh, that was the hypothesis that we started with when we uh, started placing electrodes into the brain. And it just didn't work out uh, that way. Uh, first, most of the neurons preferred to respond more strongly to the combined duet performance than either part alone. But I think the part that surprised us the most was that the neurons in the male brains did not respond well to male song, but rather respond, responded better to the female parts. So in this case, the male, who probably never ever in his life sings the female part, has a stronger or more active, or I don't know how you describe it in uh, uh, sort of impartial terms, but he has more activity related to her parts of the song than the thing that he produces. And it's a little bit surprising because the area where we're making these recordings, HVC, is known to be involved in the generation of the motor output. So here you are in a part that's involved in singing the male's part. It doesn't respond to his own part. It responds to the female's parts. But this is because this is, this is, a, this is in anesthetized uh, recordings when you're playing the bird song. So one of the one of the cool things about this system from a songbird in a general perspective is, is the ability to kind of take apart uh, sensory and motor aspects of uh, of the problem because you have part of the the continuing program is provided for you and it's part of what you have to do yourself. So there's some some differences, but in some ways you're still stuck a little bit, right? So uh, you're hearing some. The bird is hearing the song and the duet may sound quite different when he's singing, the, the, especially if you get a sensory motor nucleus like HVC, maybe quite different state uh, when he's singing than when he's just listening and then anesthetized, you don't know. So clearly the sensory motor things are hooked up, but they may express themselves differently in different conditions and certainly uh, the anesthetized recordings are, are, are kind of weird and sleep-like and dream, maybe they're dreaming and they get more, males get more excited about females only when they dream and they don't care. <laughs> That's probably true, but the, 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 it's sort of begging the question of like whether HPC is really motor or not to say that in the anesthetized animal it's something different from in the awake animal, right? I mean, it, if, if the HPC is more sophisticated than just describing the movement we're going to make, but actually understands the overall goal, what it's supposed to sound like, then you wouldn't think that it would become better at such a sophisticated thing during anesthesia. Right? I mean, that's sort of what you're saying. Dreaming, dreaming makes your motor system a better sensory system or a better 
a concept or abstract. Well, I don't know about better, but it's just it's you. It's clear, and it's kind of it's still a difficulty in the sense that if you map the sensory representation on the motor uh, representations, and they're mapped in some way that you can translate. And you got a sensory motor nucleus that responds to both things, which has been shown in the zebra finches. So you can record the same things when they're sleeping and when you play the bird's own song and when they sing. Um, then it's hard to parse apart them by which is sensory and motor. What about the concept? Because it, it seems to me that in some way the duet isn't it isn't. A, just sensory motor. It's a kind of concept of what we're trying, of the sound we're trying to make. And that sort of template, which you guys, bird folks normally don't put in that part of the bird brain, is that. Yeah. So uh, that's what seems cool to me. I mean, I could see why you'd try to rescue the idea that that's stored somewhere else, but it sounds like it's there too. Well, I don't know. Is it the, I think it's an open question whether they have a concept of what they're trying to do. Like, as you. Do they have a common goal, or do they have a, a learned, shared reaction of developing something, right? So suppose it is a sensory motor uh, kind of behavior, and all you care about is getting your sensory motor behavior to match the other uh, critter's sensory motor behavior, and all they care about is getting theirs to match yours. And so there is no plan, right? It's kind of uh, like a dance or something like that. Well, dances have a plan. Well, but this one might not. So, that, so that's, I mean, that's the open question about whether this one does. I mean, it, it's, in Norway, it's quite a different, uh, a different question about whether you construct a plan, a representation that way, or are you, you never have a plan, you always just kind of react and without the other It's issue in motor cortex about what motor cortex is for, you know, and motor cortex folks have fought with each other, and I sure don't want any of the listeners who have any motor cortex folks to think I'm taking a stand on it one way or the other, but the motor cortex neurons res that respond, you know, during hand movements also respond when the monkey sees another monkey move his hand. And that's, uh, it's kind of disturbing because it's, because the monkey that's, whose motor cortex neurons are firing in that situation isn't moving his hand. But they're upper motor neurons. They should be making the monkey move his head, but they're not. They're, mo they're firing because some other monkey is I think that uh, the problem is more deep and problematic than this, which is that the nervous system, when it's controlling behavior, is operating in closed loop, meaning that uh, whatever you do is feeding back on yourself, not only in the brain, but externally to the animal. And so what does that mean? That means there's a connection from the output to the input. The, that's what closed loop means in this case. And so the connection's being made both through the air and the animal speaking or singing and hearing itself, but also in neural connections inside uh, the brain. And so when we do these anesthetized um, experiments, that loop, that natural loop is opened. And that the nervous system wasn't built to operate in open loop. It operates in closed loop. And we know from engineering that that causes complete havoc, that you can have wildly unexplained behavior out of a system that's designed to be closed loop, and you open the loop. And a good example is an op amp. An op amp has two inputs, and it compares the difference in the uh, voltages between those um, uh, those two inputs, and then has a voltage that responds to it. It's the easiest way to say it. 
uh, as its output. And the typical use for an op-amp is to take the output, send it out to some useful thing, like to a speaker on a, uh, in a stereo, but you take the other, that lead and you feed it back to one of the inputs. Now, if you put in an input, there's a small difference, but as soon as the op-amp responds, it hears itself responding, and so it ends up performing well. It ends up copying the input. But if you break that feedback, the system goes into, it becomes open loop, and it goes into saturation. So it doesn't matter what you put in, you'll get what looks like a square wave. goes from one end to the other immediately. So to start to consider how the nervous system works in open loop is a serious problem and one that we often, so um, my explanation or is that the nervous system at the level of HVC uses this feedback during its motor programs. But when you eliminate the motor program and that you open up that loop, you hypersensitized it in a way to the auditory feedback because they're the damping aspect, the feedback, has been eliminated. And that, this seems like a uh, pretty straightforward, the example of a op-amp is a pretty straightforward example, but if you imagine that feedback is occurring over multiple time scales, through multiple transmitters, through multiple brain systems, all at the same time, all with the goal of having a robust output, it means that it's difficult to interpret what these representations mean beyond that they exist and that they're part of this system. Uh, oh, now I'm really getting down. So, <laughs> see, like, if I have an electric circuit that isn't working, that includes an op-amp, and I'm trying to figure out why it's broken, the first thing I do is disconnect the feedback so that I have a simpler circuit so that I can figure it out. So uh, if you're saying that every impression I get and from open loop behavior of circuits is wrong and the only way to analyze them is closed loop, then actually my strategy for fixing broken things would never work. Well, except for that your broken things are engineered systems and typically it's not the feedback. If, you know, take for instance in, a, uh, in an amplifier, um, the chip is its own feedback system and I can guarantee the feedback is never broken. Right, because that little wire is a printed part of the circuit. And there are predictable, because we know the layout, we already know the, um, what the system is supposed to do and what it does when you're not. So what's feeding. the algorithm for figuring out how the nervous system works? <laughs> well, it's... Don't break any connections. No, no, no. Down, so don't slice anything it's, up. It's a, it's a super tough problem because... Uh, uh, because the nervous system is designed to be robust. Its job is not to fail. And it's not particularly good at a particular performance. For instance, a tape recording of these birds singing would do a lot better job at reproducing the song, meaning zero variance and high fidelity and press the button and it works. Whereas the um, bird has all of these complex systems that aren't as good at reproducing any single performance, but no engineered system is as reliable or capable or as simply robust to perturbations and all sorts of things occurring as, a, um, as an animal uh, might be. And that robustness is what makes uh, dissecting the nervous system so 
um, complicated. You know, we talk about, we commonly refer to this uh, procedure, and I guess people in genetics often talk about this as well. Sometimes we talk about circuit breaking, where we lesion this part of the brain, or we modulate this other part of the brain, or we inactivate this set of neurons. And all that tells us is, of course, how the nervous system performs without those parts. It doesn't actually tell us what those parts are doing. And because the system is built with multiple redundant systems, it turns out that it's very complicated to, um, to, uh, to sort of dice out or figure out what each part is doing. So where does that leave us? It doesn't leave us with nothing. I mean, actually, the, the field. Sure, I was really <laughs> Well, I. The, so a trend in, in the physiological neurosciences these days is to study animals in the awake behaving state, to place electrodes into the brain while the animal performs the behavior. That is a powerful approach to understanding how the system works. How does that work? I mean, uh, so now I see that the neurons do this and they do that, but I mustn't say that this part of the brain's job is to encode something because it's in an open loop and closed loop, I mean, and everything is connected to everything, like a big web, and then if you tug in one part, you see stuff in all, all the other parts. Well, and engineers so, are not worried about this uh, problem, it, although they deal with the same exact issue, except for they made it, right? If you have a thermostat that's controlling the temperature of the room, it's a completely closed loop system, so there's no beginning and no end. The but everybody knows then what the, each part's job is. If what you're going to try to do is reverse engineer the thermostat, then you definitely do have to mess up with it. You can't just like record the, the temperature in the room right. and then record it again tomorrow <laughs> and hope to figure out how the thermostat works. Yeah. Can you? Uh, no, you, you, have to, you have to modulate the system. So engineers would say, okay, um, uh, well, okay, picking an example of keeping a, a room at the right temperature is probably also a poor example because that's a, a mostly or completely linear system. When nervous systems and animals are highly nonlinear and extremely difficult to capture in any sort of uh, modeling effort. So what are we to do? And, you know, to me, this is a lovely challenge because what did we expect? Organisms are really, really complicated. I mean, there's just, they do amazing things. That's why we're studying them in the first place. So that it's hard doesn't, doesn't bother me. So we take the tools that we have available to us and, and we use them the best we can. But we need to be careful with how we talk about them as we use them. So uh, don't give up, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the message. Um, and I think it's fair for us to use um, these terms like representation or encoding or whatnot um, because we need to communicate amongst each other. But we need to bear in mind at the same time that those are fundamentally wrong. They are fundamentally wrong. I mean, uh, a sensory system has, at the level of the sensory receptors is filtering the universe in some sort of way, so we can talk about it as a filter, as an active filter. But the moment you get into the first stage of processing in the brain, in almost every sensory system that I know, there's massive amounts of feedback that can shift that filter depending on the task at hand by the animal. 
Well, that's terrible if you're going to analyze any single behavior at any time in the organism. Because, let's just take an example from electric fish. They have electroreceptors, and it sends information into the electrosensory lateral line lobe. And depending on whether the image is small, like a prey item, or large, like a social communication signal, a vast number of neurons will switch their frequency tuning properties to match the type of stimulus. So now imagine, oh, what does the ELL, what do these neurons do? Well, in one context, they do one thing, and in another context, they do the other. So if we had done an old experiment, or an experiment that you can even do today, like put in some sort of channel rhodopsin or something and activate those neurons, you would get different answers depending on the context in which you tried the experiment. So, not only, now we've just added... So this, in this situation, as a, you know, a person with a sort of reductionist attitude like me, I guess, is then the question becomes, are the contexts innumerable? Are they infinitely large? If they're infinitely large, I'm going home. I don't think it's worth it to try to figure out how a device like that works. It's just a waste of time. Go do something else. Try to cure world hunger or something. But if you, if, if there's like five contexts, then I would try to come up with five definitions of what that neuron does in each of those five contexts. And then I would, I think like that would be a manageable thing for me and I would keep on doing what I do. Well, that's why I think that because what, what you get at, you have a really complicated system, but you can measure it in lots of different ways, right? So you want to have various perturbations and see about the patterns of things that break down. So luckily, when various things go wrong, generally, in a, a or anesthetized system, it doesn't go to a square wave and you get nothing, right? <laughs> so sometimes it doesn't analyze and you get nothing, but you could push the system and break it because it's so robust, a lot of the a lot of the behaviors are still there. So you get patterns of behaviors you can call from lots of places, you can manipulate it in lots of ways, and you see similar things for some manipulations, and you see different things for some manipulations, and you record different patterns and multiple covariant patterns and some things that so you've got lots of patterns now to start to triangulate what is potentially a lower dimensional uh, problem set of, of how to modulate the system. Because if it is uh, hugely, if all the contexts are, are different, uh, then it is impossible to figure out. But it may be impossible for evolution to figure out that too, right? So you, you take uh, simple basic behaviors and elaborate them and so forth. And you want to at least get somewhere on the simple basic kinds of circuit plans and behaviors about what the brain is doing. And you can, like a little bit, anyway. And as scientists, we can also be clever. There are going to be parts of the brain that are more, uh, have more tasks closer to the infinity and throw up your hands and find another job. And like the basal other, ganglia. Like the basal ganglia in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> people always come up with just one thing that's basal It changes every couple of years, but it's always just one thing. Well, or you can pick um, uh, sort of behaviors that limit the scope of the sets of questions, which is precisely why we pick to work on songbirds, because the songbirds have evolved, and that's easily demonstrable, parts of the brain that are as dedicated to a, managing a particular behavior as any part of the brain that we know. And so we've reduced that parameter space enormously. But that being said, 
we can manage this in all sorts of ways. Uh, one way is to, and a common way, is to devise a task for the animal that the animal does robustly. So um, uh, maze walking or, or the Morris, another example of a maze, the Morris water maze, these animals will do this behavior robustly. And what we're doing in that behavior is constraining the number of states that the animal is going to be in to a set. And within that uh, set of states, we can then analyze the circuit. But we will always be uh, uh, stymied to some degree because those same circuits in other contexts are being are managing other behaviors, potentially more important behaviors than finding a hidden platform in a milky pool. Oh, but that seems important right there. That seems extremely important. Life, <laughs> it's, it's important. <laughs> so, I, I, um, so a lot of neuroscientists, I think, do this already, constrain the number of open parameters by picking a particular task and don't think about that aspect of the, of the question because they're dealing with complex other issues like what's being expressed at what time, what the developmental process, what learning is. We've got it. It's a tough job. But um, I think many neuroscientists, me included, will then take the next step and make broader generalizations that go well beyond the task that the animal is performing at hand. This area does this, when in reality, it's probably context dependent. But there's the other saving grace here is that there's so much to learn. <laughs> Even if we're not figuring out exactly what that neuron is supposed to do in all contexts, we are so blind to how the nervous system works, and it works so much better than any engineered system in terms of robustness in particular, that those insights um, are valuable despite the drawbacks, despite the problems. So if I, if I get, sort of get back to the duet singing, there are a couple of other parts of it. One of them is the male is sort of getting his cue from the female. That, I think that's one thing uh, that seems clear enough in the female. That's somehow related to the fact that the male's neurons are responding to the female part of the song. Maybe that's related. So in that case, you could just think of the female as just a metronome for the male, right? And if you had artificial robotic female singing, then the male would sync up with that and do his best. And then the female expects the male to say his part, and if he is late, she'll get ambition and just go out and say her next part. So that was that's a real clear thing from your results, right? I mean, well, so when, this is one of those uh, things that where our, feeling, our thinking on this is evolving. So our initial data set strongly suggested that that was exactly it, that it's a, uh, that the female is, is a form of metronome, although she's a metronome that can be sped up and slowed down a little bit based on feedback, but that she's providing the central cues, and the, in that regard, the male, to some degree, is following. But since then, and with much more experience in the laboratory with these birds, we're finding that uh, unbeknownst to us previously, it's the male who typically initiates the song. Um, so the reason we missed it before is because we had microphones out in the field with their natural behavior, and if they weren't right on top of the microphone, which is pretty much, they were never right on top of the microphone, the male's initial syllables are low amplitude. We don't hear them, but 
So the first syllable by the female is the first loud syllable, and so we pick that up, and the male subsequent syllables are loud. But now that we have them in the laboratory and we have a microphone in or next to the cage, the males seem to be doing most of the initiating, but not all of it. And then on top of that, we've seen, after much more recording in a more controlled environment, that uh, sometimes it's the female who will drop out and the male will continue. Uh, the, uh, I, we know that there are some differences in how that happens between males and females, how they respond to the other, the companion not singing, but we don't have those well quantified. So maybe it's a little bit like a rock band. I mean, the drummer sets the beat, but the leader of the band usually isn't a drummer, and then uh, if the drummer screws up, the band can bring him back and beat. It's, well, just like we were saying, it's a, it's a robust system with multiple ways of, of solving the problem. The, the question we have is, what's the problem that they're trying to solve? Um, so why are they singing together? I mean, you call it cooperative behavior, it's a, it's, but it's not exactly the same as one of them stands on the other shoulders to get a banana, right? <laughs> That's what I call cooperative behavior, and then we share the banana after yeah. I got it. This is, uh, this, there's no real obvious goal in this. Well, there, people, so um, ecologists have been and uh, uh, people have been studying tropical birds for a long time, and their ecology is quite different than what we're used to up in uh, the temperate zone, up here in the United States and Canada. Um, they maintain, these birds in the tropics maintain their uh, territories uh, year-round, and you can imagine that's a, a bigger task for them. And uh, the notion is, is that if you're defending your territory with song, Two birds singing is twice as much energy to defend your territory as a single bird um, singing. And so what we see, so we can sneak up on the birds and do a playback, and sometimes the birds will be a few meters apart, and one bird will start singing. But immediately, the other bird starts to sing and then approaches the other bird. Now, the ecologists say that the reason that the two birds approach each other is because they are forming sort of a united front against the invader and that this is sort of an ecological problem, that the effectiveness of the advertisement is stronger when they're closer together. Of course, from my perspective as a mechanist would be, well, it's a lot harder to coordinate a duet at distance because of the, um, of the time it takes for the transit of sound back and forth between the two individuals. And so if you're going to do this, you might as well fly together. Now, of course, the answer is probably both, right? The animals clearly prefer to sing closer together, probably because it's easier for them to achieve the task. But at the same time, it achieves the ultimate goal, which is a stronger signal against uh, invaders. So why exactly two? Because if you had, like, two couples protecting there, then it would be four voices. Right. Well, so... Uh, the whole reason we know about these birds, the whole reason I got started on this, um, was because it, with this species, more than two birds will sing in a coordinated fashion. So there are lots of friend species, and uh, males and females will sing together. But in this species, I guess the story is, I believe, that Nigel Mann was walking through a habitat, and he was doing playbacks, and he got mobbed by four or five or six birds, all singing a coordinated it's like it's no longer a duet, <laughs> all singing coordinated together. And that is extremely interesting. That's a massive display 
of territorial defense. And for them, the question becomes, then, who are the members of this quartet or septet or, or whatever? And hopefully, they're all related to each other. And that's the kind of question that they are actively uh, studying right now, to figure out who is singing and when. Are they alternating by four now, or what, everyone is doing a four-periodic uh, song, or that? <laughs> I, I would be so happy if that was the result, but as it, it, they still only have two parts, but you can see in the sonograms multiple versions of the two parts happening at the same time, which is actually, more. the more we've learned about the birds, the more amazing that is. If they only had one song that they could sing, like the males only sang two syllables, and the females only sang two syllables, and they inter and they inter both of them, that'd be hard enough to coordinate four birds. But we know that the birds can sing a lot of different permutations of their duet. And when they do sing as a group, they are singing the same syllables, at least in the beginning. They do tend to devolve after a little while. It tends to get messy, and then they stop. But in the beginning, they are singing the same syllables at the same time. And how they manage that is, is astounding. So does it work like all the males are singing the male part, all the females are singing the female? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Now, this is one of those things that's uh, uh, dependent on the subpopulation that you're looking at. So we went to the same place uh, where Nigel Mann is working. In fact, we ran into him there, <laughs> completely uncoordinated. Dr. Mann, I presume. Yes, Dr. Dr. Mann, uh, and a really nice guy. And uh, he was there with his advisor, his previous advisor. He's a uh, faculty member. And uh, uh, Peter Slater, Dr. Slater. And uh, they were, um, so we went up there in the same habitat. And there, you see, hear these quartets routinely, commonly. When we were doing our work, we were at a, on the other side of the Andes, uh, very close by, only uh, 20, 30 kilometers away, and we almost never heard more than two birds singing it at the same time. We have now been to other locations where we do hear lots of this uh, simultaneous um, singing. One of the unique features of the, of the place they were doing their study is called Pasachoa. It's an ancient caldera of a volcano, and these birds seem to be trapped in a bamboo forest inside of this limited range. Whereas where we were studying the animals where we never saw the quartets, it's a very open bamboo forest with no natural boundaries. And so we wonder, and we're actually going to examine this um, issue, is if the habitat is playing uh, a role in who is singing what at what time. Um, so it could be that these isolated populations, where the population is more dense, but potentially, that the family start, uh, starts to um, uh, coordinate their singing all together to defend their territories. It's interesting, but you know the f the fun and the painful part about this is that once you get into the field with natural behavior, the behavior is so wildly unconstrained and so beautiful that there's a million things that you're interested in studying, a million things that are not, that cannot be easily translated into neuroscience experiments. And I'm a trained neuroscientist and not a trained ecologist. Ask my ecologist friends and they will remind you of this fact. And so you have to spend a lot of time focusing on those sets of questions which both will have a clean behavioral result that can then be translated into a neurophysiological experiment. If we can't do that, then we are not going down the path 
that is our skill set. Now, our strategy in Ecuador, of course, is to engage Ecuadorian students in this project. And because we have funding from, uh, uh, thankfully, from the United States taxpayers to do this work, we can support some of the Ecuadorians' research that complements our own. They are experts in ecology and evolution because that's the resource that they have available to them. So by coordinating our more mechanistic research with their more ecological skills, we can really have a synergy that advances both, both fields. We're really could not be more excited about that. You know, whenever we do scientific research, we're concerned about the fact that there are limited funds. Getting grants is difficult. It's the hard work of the American people that provides taxpayer funds for us to do our research. And so we want to get the most out of this money. And we feel like these kinds of synergies are, are the best way of, of doing well for us, a really great way of, of achieving that. So one of the remarkable things that, uh, that you're doing is to do tetrode recordings more or less in the wild. I know it's not quite exactly the same as in the wild, but it's almost in the oh, wild. Oh, no, it's it's in the wild. I mean, the place we were doing the um, tetrode recordings has no electricity. It has running water insofar as there's a huge vat up the hill, and it collects rain. And, of course, this is a cloud forest, so on a single day you can have a meter, a meter of rainfall. So there's plenty of water, and we have this vat that comes down. Um, and uh, the habitat where we catch the bird is no more than 50 meters away from where we do the experiment. So we're there. <laughs> but these experiments, I mean, I hate to say it for those people who are struggling to get their tetra recordings working. <laughs> Sorry. But it's really easy. <laughs> you know, you take a few wires, kind of glue them together, snip the ends off, hook them to a connector, and attach an amplifier transmitter system, glue it into the bird, and there you go. So all the better. What is the prospect? I mean, it is true that you are in the wild when you're doing your tetrode recording, but the bird isn't quiet. Right? No, we're not releasing them. Yeah, not with our $2,000 amplifier transmitter attached to their back. Not until we have a flinging device. But, but technically, it... It's close to being possible to do some like telemetry because these birds don't go huge distances. They're not going to fly 100 miles away and get them out of your range. Technically, it's possible that sometime in the future you'd be turning them loose and recording from them in well, their natural said, habit. Yeah. yeah. Well, the battery technology will need to be um, a lot better, but sure. And one could imagine and. You know, we have spare time on our hands uh, when we're out there <laughs> waiting for the birds to fly in the nets. And we've talked about bizarre things like solar panels on birds, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, if you could, uh, uh, the, uh, it's hard to imagine that being possible um, today. Uh, well, there's a, other than solar panels, a more, I mean, that, that was being a little silly, but but we have thought about the fact that um, you could put a coil on the animal and use one of these magnetic induction coils to power the system. And there's no reason why um, the animals are extremely territorial, although we don't know how far they will range. If we put transmitters on them, we they wouldn't be able to work. Oh, yeah, you keep track of it. But you need, you need, the, uh, you need the, the audio, though. Well, that's easy, too. Um, you know, microphones are very tiny, and you can glue a microphone onto the head of the bird along with all the other 
equipment. Now, I mean, there's, there are some ethical issues here. Um, we would not be able to just instrument an animal and release it into the wild without the prospect of being able to intervene. Um, we take animal care very seriously and what we do to the animals very seriously. And imagine you've got an animal with a transmitter on it and something goes wrong. Little infection, a wire comes out, it's causing pain to the animal. Well, we're required, ethically, morally, and by the rules set out that govern our activities, to intervene to eliminate that pain one way or another. So if you have animals just running around in an open place where they can go away, that's not, we can't do that. So we have talked about the possibility of enclosing their habitat. So we could cut a boundary in the bamboo and then erect a net, a tent basically, and enclose the animals. Once we have that, then we have the kind of control that we need. And still, because they're natural, it would be extremely. it might be imperceptible. Yeah. yeah, especially since a lot of the at least the initial interactions with outsiders is is auditory. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, and and we may find natural habitats which are already like this because there are clumps of bamboo that are isolated. So. Um, we know there's one area that's probably two or three hectares in, and it has two or three pairs of these birds living on it. We know that, and they are almost certainly limited to this little side of the mountain up from Yanagaku. And we've talked about the possibility of enclosing it. Of course, the ecologists that work at this place are also extremely interested in doing that because then they would set up like little cement uh, markers and start trying to do a serious um, analysis of bamboo ecology and being able to monitor and control this, this small um, area. It's a really exciting set of projects, but one that requires a lot of commitment by somebody to work down um, in Ecuador. And you know, um, that person should not be me, uh, but finding the right person to do it is not is not easy. Uh, you know, making effective collaboration where you are cross-purposes, meaning uh, ecologists looking at one set of questions across different time scales, and us looking at a different set of questions that are potentially invasive, um, that's a difficult thing to work on. But that's something we're eagerly going to pursue in the next um, uh, few years. Maybe when I'm older, wiser, <laughs> more convincing. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, uh, Eric Fortune. This has been our science talk show.